I'm Jim Pullett. And I'm Beth Bartell. This is KGNU's How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, February 25th, 2014. Coming up, figuring out how to use single-celled organisms to sort out whether methane in water wells comes from fracking. And learning about a safe place for wolves born into domestication. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Scientists now are confident that a little zircon crystal is the oldest known piece of crustal rock. That's so cool. Scientists have just recently been able to say with great certainty to less than 10 million years, and yes, in geology, that's certainty, how ancient the crystal is. The zircon has an internal clock made from its uranium and lead atoms. The uranium tick-tocks into lead predictably. But there was concern the clock wasn't reliable because some of the lead atoms may have leaked out of the rock. New tests show that hasn't happened. Continents and the ocean bottoms are part of the Earth's crust, a bobbing slab of youngish rocks that is continuously swept back into the abyss of the Earth at uh, plate boundaries called subduction zones, which are my personal favorite tectonic process. Most of the Earth's crust is mere hundreds of millions of years old. In Canada, there's some crust that's way older, about three and a half billion years old. But the zircon from the Jack Hills in Western Australia goes back to about 4.4 billion years old and is evidence for a solid crust on Earth before anyone thought possible. The Earth isn't much older than the hardy zircon. Just 100 million years ago or so, before the zircon formed and just after the Earth coalesced, a Mars-sized planet struck the not-so-blue world, causing the moon to be belched off and the whole surface to be turned into a molten ocean. Imagine that. No safe place to hang out. But once a solid crust rapidly formed, including the little blob of zircon, liquid water may have existed and life much older than ever suspected, just maybe two. Nature Geoscience published the analysis on February 24th. Well, Beth, I didn't realize that subduction zones were your personal favorite. Love them. If you think quantum mechanics is weird, you are in good company. Entanglement is the apparent connection between two particles, such that the measurement of one particle seemingly instantaneously affects the properties of the other distant particle. Such spooky action at a distance goes against the basic rules of relativity. In a paper published in the journal Physical Review Letters, researchers propose an experiment that could test to see if entanglement is a fundamental property or not. There is a possibility that the detector settings scientists use to measure entanglement are biased by entanglement itself. So the authors propose making measurements where the setting of the detector values are based on observations of distant and supposedly non-entangled quasars. In theory, these settings should be unbiased, so if they still show particles are entangled, then quantum mechanics may be the most fundamental description of how the universe behaves, as opposed to having some deeper level that is consistent with classical mechanics. It is all very confusing. <laughs> it sounds it sounds confusing to me, but I was a little bit afraid to admit that. That headline has our, uh, our contributor, Joel Parker, written all over it. Um, back to Earth and, and ages, DNA tests show that almost all indigenous peoples in the Americas are related to a child who died in North America almost 13,000 years ago. 
The boy was about a year old when he died. In his Montana grave were stone tools characteristic as what is of what is called the Clovis culture. Archaeologists believe that people migrated across the Bering Land Bridge between Siberia and Alaska in groups over time. There were people already in the Americas before the Siberian people who made Clovis tools, but the groups who made Clovis tools spread widely throughout the North and South over a few hundred years. The researchers infer that 80% of Native Americans are direct descendants of the Montana boys' family. The researchers from the U.S. and Denmark say the Siberian Clovis people split into two groups, one settling in Canada and the other spreading throughout South America and Mexico. The team didn't have access to DNA from Native Americans in the U.S., but infer results will be similar. The DNA analysis was published in Nature by a team from the U.S. and Denmark. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Jim Pullen. On Sunday, the state just finished a round of rulemaking on air quality controls for oil and gas facilities. Environmentalists and others have widely hailed the regs for their tougher stances on monitoring and controlling gas leaks. The rules are the first in the nation controlling methane leaks. While the air has been in the limelight, there are still plenty of concerns about how groundwater could be impacted by fracked wells. I'm happy to welcome uh, Dr. Lee Stanish, a research associate with the Department of Molecular, Cellular, and Developmental Biology. Lee is trying to understand the microbiology of people's water, and one of her projects focuses on groundwater biology and tracing the sources of methane in people's wells. Thanks, Lee, for joining us this morning. Uh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. Lee, what is the danger posed by fra- uh, by methane in water? So methane itself is actually not very toxic to people. Um, one of the major dangers is actually uh, explosion. So if you have high enough concentrations of the gas methane in your water um, and it builds up, then you could actually have an explosion hazard, although um, that's a pretty uncommon thing, although there are lots of instances of people being able to light their water on fire. So people can sort of see the manifestation of methane gas in their water if they're able to light it on fire. Yeah, right. And this has been the kind of stunning kind of film that's been shown in in, in these uh, movies like Gasland and Gasland 2, of people being able to light, light their tap water on fire. Did that ever happen before fracking? Uh, there's a lot of evidence that that suggests that, um, naturally occurring methane in people's groundwater can get to high enough concentrations that, um, you can light it on fire. And there are actually, uh, you can look on YouTube and, um, some of the local radio or news stations have, uh, video clips of people in Weld County and along the front range who've been able to light their water on fire. And so far the evidence suggests that that's naturally occurring methane. Oh, really? That's yeah. interesting, mm-hmm. right? But but perhaps some of it is caused by methane that has kind of contaminated the groundwater because of oil and gas, and especially maybe fracking, maybe, uh, you know, through uh, ruptures in the casing and things like that that allow the water to percolate up. But tell us a little bit before we start getting into, into that and how we figure out where it comes from, what are the sources of methane? I guess there are some ancient sources, and then there are some sources that come from uh, living biological critters. 
Right. So, so yes, all methane in sort of at the base of it is coming from um, from living organisms, um, and the difference is uh, how it's being processed and ultimately ultimately made. So we have sort of abiotic processes that can be um, processing organic matter that was laid down from dead organisms that were, that were killed or that died millions of years ago. Um, so that's, you know, the fossilized layers and that's where the shale and the natural gas that's being fracked is coming from. And that is organic matter that's being um, broken down from sort of bigger carbon chains into smaller carbon chains through pressures and temperatures um, to make the smaller methane gas molecules. And then you have the biogenic processes, which are occurring in today, um, where you have single-celled organisms called microbes, and in particular, a group of micro re- microbes called methanogens uh, that can be actually taking CO2 or um, other organic molecules and turning it into methane gas through metabolism. Makers of methane. Exactly. Yeah, makers yeah. of methane. <laughs> Methanogens. <Ooh. laughs> so why, why can't we figure out where the methane is coming from, whether it's from the, these deep um, deposits that were built a long, long time ago by now, dead critters, or, you know, the, the stuff that's being built now? Can, can we figure it out or, or why? Uh, yeah, so there's been a lot of emphasis, especially with um, all, all of the fracking activity that's been going on in the past eight years or so to try to figure out where the methane is originating from. Um, because the fracking has been going on very close to people's homes, um, people are very aware that it's happening. And so they're concerned that when they find methane in their water, that it's coming from hydraulic fracturing activities. Um, and so geochemists, people who study uh, the chemistry in uh, rocks and such, um, have figured out ways to use stable isotopes of of methane. Um, So those are just uh, different molecular weight carbon atoms uh, to figure out if the methane could be coming from a sort of deep uh, natural gas source or if it could be coming from these modern methanogens. Um, And the problem is that those Methods are very expensive, and they re- require very um, uh, ex- skilled and experienced people to do. Um, and so the goal of my research was to try to say, well, if we're trying to look at a fundamentally microbial process, right, this uh, methanogenesis that these microbes are doing in, in uh, modern times, then why don't we just try to look at the microbes themselves? Uh, and the advantages to that are that um, you could potentially use this as a long-term monitoring tool. Um, collecting someone's water is uh, relatively simple, so you could even devise a kit that could be distributed to homeowners, and they could just collect the water themselves and then um, you know, send their water off, and then it could just sit on a filter and be stuck in a freezer for years or decades or perhaps indefinitely. And then if there's an, ever any concern about the quality of the water or whether or not any sort of new fracking activity occurred, you could just go back to the, those samples and process them and look at the microbes that were in those samples. So it seems like a relatively robust way. Um, and so the, the work that I'm sort of building on is based on some preliminary uh, sampling that we did last summer with a geochemist, looking at the microbiology in concert with the geochemistry. And we do see some interesting relationships between the abundances of this group of um, microbes called methanogens and the presence of methane. Um, and so these samples were collected along the front range from well owners who very generously um, offered us to offer to let us sample their water. So 
what I'm working on doing now is trying to uh, get funds to do a more um, uh, uh, to expand the analysis to a different location where we find that there are different sources of, of methane, and that's through geochemical analyses. So what I want to do is go sample those waters for microbes to see if we see differences in uh, the microbes there and if, and if the microbes could actually be tracers of the source of methane. That sounds like a great new technique and uh, one that's going to be a lot lower cost and, and not require all these research facilities and all these extremely uh, you know, highly trained people like you, uh, researchers, <laughs> to do. So you're looking for money to do this. Money is always in tight supply and science, and it's kind of amazing. I think people would really be, especially people in the business community, be stunned about how hard sometimes it is to get money. So tell us a little bit about your, uh, your uh, kind of crowdfunding effort. Sure. So sort of to build upon uh, the study from last summer, I started um, a crowdfunding campaign, and it's uh, through this platform called SciFund, and it's being hosted on experiment.com. And the goal of SciFund is really to um, raise money for scientific research projects. So basic research, applied research. Um, It's essentially like Kickstarter or Indiegogo, except the focus is really on... um, on funding science. Well, that is extremely interesting. And when you get some results, we'd certainly like to hear more about it. And thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. All right. Dr. Lee Stanish with CU Boulder Research Associate there, who's looking at issues of uh, methane and uh, fracking in, in our groundwater and in our wells. You're tuned to How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. I'm Beth Bartel. And Jim, I've got a statistic for you and for everyone in Radioland. Are you ready? Less than one-tenth of the wolves in the United States live in the wild. Actually, only about 8% of our country's wolves are born in the wild. Fewer than 10,000 wolves live in the wild, while about a quarter of a million live in captivity. And most of the captive wolves born each year do not even survive to see their first birthday. They're either destroyed or they die of neglect. And that's where Colorado's Mission Wolf comes in, and hence our next story. Mission Wolf has rescued three dozen of these born-in-a-cage canines to give them a better life and to use some of them as ambassadors who educate people around the U.S. about the amazing intelligence of wolves and their plight. How on Earth contributor Shelley Schlender brings us this piece with Boulder naturalist and KGNU volunteer Steve Jones. That's the sound of 37 wild wolves greeting the dawn here at Mission Wolf. Located high on a grassy ridge in the wet mountain valley west of Pueblo. I'm here with Ben Hoffman. He's cutting up very red meat to feed to the wolves this morning. What do you got, Ben? Um, I think it's horse. Tell me where the horse came from. When ranchers have horses that are sick or old, need to be put down, we'll take them and feed them to the wolves. And we get food for our wolves, and they don't have to do with burying the animal. And they know that it's being useful and being honored, and that's death. 
Haley, you're putting, it looks like, antibiotics into the food bowl. This is actually vitamin C. We give the wolves supplements just to kind of help them be a little bit more healthy. So everybody's getting vitamin C today. Some of the older guys get uh, glucosamine, um, which helps their joints. And then you just throw some dog kibble in here as well? Yeah. Got two little pups in here. They're kind of like three or four year old kids. They're the only ones that have bad behavior. The adults are like, yeah, it's your mic, you know, but if you hand it to them, you know, they'll walk away with it. Great. But if the wolf comes to grab this, you do not let them. You put your hand in front of it and go, that is my mic. Kent Weber and his wife Tracy established Mission Wolf in 1984 to provide sanctuary for animals abandoned by private citizens, zoos, and even movie companies. Volunteers come from as far away as Japan and Scandinavia to work at the sanctuary, and some stay for many years. The sanctuary operates entirely on solar power. Their motto is sustainability. The sanctuary is surrounded by 200 acres of protected grasslands and pinyon juniper woodlands. These wolves are fairly accustomed to humans, so we could sit on a log as one by one they came over to greet us. Well, come on, Abraham. You can't just sit there in the shade. One wolf named Abraham even put his paws up on my shoulder and licked me in the face. Abraham, come on, keep going. Come on. Most wolves in captivity, you should probably notice, they're just afraid of people and timid and shy, and you see them at zoos pacing around, and the idea was to give them a big home so they could hide. And when you do that, they're not so afraid. And then the next thing we saw is when people came up, people were the stimulus and the wolves would run up to see who the people were. And of course that made people happy because they didn't see animals pacing around and they're like, well, what can we do to help? And we said, build fence. So that's how 25 years later, you end up with almost 50 acres. And do you do uh, educational activities outside the sanctuary with, with some of these wolves? Most of the wolves here, this is just a sanctuary for them for their life. And the idea is if they're scared of people, they get a big home and they don't have to be exposed to people, except when they get fed in water. And then you got other wolves, they love to meet people. Mm -hmm. And they just see you as a big dominant wolf. And when they come up, they just lay their ears back. And whether it's eye to eye like we got from 20 feet or nose to nose, that's the experience that, you know, we can talk all day about that people actually remember. Some of them, if you think about it, and you lived in a cage and you had to wake up in that cage every day of your life, it'd get pretty boring. And if you were brave enough to get into a vehicle and you got out and you met an ocean or a lake or a river or mm -hmm. a stream, you walk into an audience of 500 people, most think the wolves would be horrified. Well, if you walk in and everybody instantly shuts up because you walk in the door yeah. and then you smile and they all go, oh, and the wolf wags his tail and they go, oh, and the next thing we find, they thrive on the road. They get more enrichment, they see more areas, they don't want to get out of the bus and run for freedom. It's get out of the bus, go five feet, find the first spot where a dog has marked its territory, and they pee on top of the dog's right. territory. That's great. So very few wolves are like that, but those are the ones that we say are ambassadors. But your ambassadors, are they all hybrids, do you think, your ambassadors? Uh, are they, no, are we've pure wolves? about 50%. These Four of these are pure wolves. We did a lot of work to help get wolves back in Yellowstone. We worked with you know, Audubon Sierra, a whole bunch of groups, 20 years people kind of pushed the government to try to reintroduce wolves to Yellowstone. 
And when we were out in Washington, D.C., and I did a program, I had the Farm Bureau president present in the program. He, of course, wanted to kill every wolf, and the only good wolf was a dead wolf. And when he saw us go into an audience of 300 people, and every time he shook his head no, the audience jeered him. And every time he shook his head yes, the audience, you know, jeered him again. Well, he starts fighting with the audience. The audience starts fighting with him. And these were locals in Durango, you know, and I told the guy, you know, these are your neighbors and neighbors, you need to learn to work with this guy. We don't need to put up a war, we need to work together. Well, what he learned is at the end of the program, as much information as he could present to the group about why wolves should die, everybody walked out of that room after they met that wolf in love with the wolf. How did you get the idea to do the sanctuary in the first place? Absolute pessimism. <laughs> I did not like animals in cages and saw a lot suffering. And within a year, we learned there was a quarter million in cages in the U.S., and that just was disgusting. A quarter million wolves? Captive wolves or in wolf cages. Hybrids. A quarter million captive wow. wolves. Another quarter million wolf dogs. Hmm. A hybrid is a yuppie term. They should be called wolf dogs. Okay. Uh, a hybrid is two different species that produces hmm. an unfertile offspring. Hmm. You know, when you and I were kids, we were told fox terriers came from foxes. About 15 years ago, as DNA was started to be learned about, they identified that actually a fox terrier's DNA is identical to a wolf, and they went through what's called a taxonomy change, and now all domestic dogs are not called Canis familiaris anymore, like they were when you and I were kids. They're now called Canis lupus familiaris. So basically a chihuahua and a Great Dane is a subspecies of gray wolf. Mm -hmm. So when they breed, they're not hybrids. They're just uh, different subspecies that produce fertile offspring. But the hybrid term was like a yuppie term that came out of the 70s and 80s. So how many wolves did you start out with here? Just a, two or three? Or did you? We came across three years of wolf dogs, came across a pure wolf, wonder if we're going to do it, do it right. And that's when it took me over a year to get a federal license. I learned everybody I met in the agencies, including the biologists, were more afraid of wolves than anyone. And when we walked the wolf into the federal department to meet all the wildlife biologists, these are all guys that have spent years years in the fields up in Canada and Wood Buffalo Park. The only way they know wolves is either from an airplane or spotting scope watching it catch and kill a prey. And they were actually more afraid of the wolves than the general public. And the other one that's afraid of the wolves is ranchers. We've taken them into many cattlemen's organizations. I come from a cattleman's background and understand that side of life. And it's usually the most obnoxious, hot-headed rancher that thinks the only good wolf is a dead wolf, that as soon as the wolf walks in, he's the one that's most afraid. And the wolf will usually go pick out that rancher to say hello to. And once they get this hello, all of a sudden, one rancher looked at me and went, oh my God, that thing is intelligent. It looked right through me. Before I visited Mission Wolf, I thought I might find the howling of wolves eerie and even frightening. But in contrast, I found it reassuring and soothing. And it's good to know that somewhere in Colorado, people are working to protect and nourish these magnificent creatures in hopes that someday they'll roam freely throughout our mountains and plains. Mission Wolf is open to public visitation 365 days a year. To find out more, visit www.missionwolf.org. For KGNU Public Radio, I'm Steve Jones.
Thanks to How on Earth Shelley Schlender for producing this story. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Jim produced and engineered today's show and is our executive producer this quarter. Thanks to Joel Parker for help with the news briefs. Our theme music today was written and produced by Josh Cutler. We also heard from TK. All right. Well, that TK is uh, North North Cape, actually. <laughs> I was wondering well, about yeah. that. <laughs> well, if you can't listen to How on Earth on a, at a regular time, don't worry. Just go to howonearthradio.org and subscribe to our podcast using the iTunes button. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bartell. And I'm Jim Pullen.